This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jim Ross. He is known as the father of the spiders, the S&P 500 uh, ETF, which State Street has put out. It is one of, if not the largest ETF, uh, with nearly $300 billion in assets under management in SPY. There are also numerous spider variations. You can buy growth, you can buy value, you can buy sector, you can buy all these very low C, which is their low carbon version of the S&P 500. There are trillions of dollars, literally trillions of dollars in various indices that track uh, what State Street does. And it's really quite a fascinating business. He is also chairman of SSGA, which is uh, the State Street Global Advisors. If you are remotely interested in things like the S&P 500, ETFs, the future of investing, I cannot overemphasize how knowledgeable and influential Jim Ross is. Uh, He won the Lifetime Achievement Award last year at ETF.com. I could go over his CV for hours. The accolades don't stop. He is simply one of the most insightful people whose career has taken so many fascinating twists and has been really there at the formation of a number of events that are still impacting us today. Uh, I think you're just going to love this conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Jim Ross. My extra special guest today is Jim Ross. He is chairman of the global spider business at State Street. Spider is the most widely held ETF with well over $200 billion in assets. He is also chairman of the board of SSGA Fund Management, which is the registered investment advisor arm of State Street. He most recently was the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from ETF.com, which is a division of the Chicago Board of Option Exchanges. Jim Ross, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, thank you very much for having me. Let's start with uh, pretty much at the beginning. You've you've been at State Street since 1992. How'd you find your way to State Street, and and what was your role back? So pretty straightforward. I was um, I started my career in public accounting. Can very easily say hated it. So I was looking for an exit path after I got my certification. I needed three years. That was three and a half years. Found an exit plan. Took a job at State Street. Career plan, and by the way, I'll talk to people about career planning. I thought I'd be there two to three years. That mm-hmm. was my plan. Plan change. So I got the State Street entry level job, new group they were setting up called Fund Administration. They hired me because I could do mutual fund financial statements for the most part. So the accounting actually came in handy. The accounting background was important back mm-hmm. then, yes. So 25 years later, after your two year plan, uh, you're running more or less running the largest ETF there is, how did you go from, hey, I'm going to start uh, at, at State Street for a couple of years to really chairman of, of a big department for them? And you, you really wear a couple of hats there. How did these come about? So um, I'd like to say some of it was hard work, persistence, and some of it was pure luck. That's a theme uh, here. You know? the, the role of random chance is always underestimated. So the random chance was I was at State Street. Mm-hmm. I could have gone different places. I was in a group, and it was a new group. So there wasn't a lot of work yet. 
Right. In 92, how big a shop was State Street? State Street, well, State Street was still at, probably at the time largest custodian, um, largest custody accounting agent in the world. But funded administration was brand new. This was a new service they were adding, and I was probably the 10th person hired into this group. So new division new in division, a large storied firm. New division, new business, kind of like not a lot of clients yet that were taking on this service, so really not a lot of work for me to do. Uh-huh. I came out of public accounting. I was used to working 70, 80, 90 hours a week. Right. I was losing my mind, Barry. So Just, you were working 40 hours and, and really a lot of minesweeper and pretty much- uh, I, I was working 40 <laughs> hours. I probably had 20 hours worth of work to do. Um, so what'd you do to fill the time? I, I went to one of my bosses and said, hey- if you have anything, it was kind of a strange situation. My boss had been out, so I went to my boss. Boss said, "Listen, you have anything? Give it to me. I, I, I just, I'm looking for stuff at some point." And there was a whole bunch of people working really hard on a project, like day and night. I had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. About a month later, he looks, "Hey, Jim, come here over here. We need help on this." It was the original ETF spy. Really? Yeah. So and that's '94. No, no, this is '92 still. This oh, is really. This is two months into my career. They've been working on this for a couple of years. They brought me over for one specific reason. They were about to, they were getting closer to launch, and they needed someone to do the first set of financial statements. Right. And like Jim has that experience. Worked Bring him out, over. Worked out perfectly. You know. So I like I say I got invited in because a I asked for more, but mm-hmm. b it was kind of they just needed some help, and I was I get a lot of credit for Spy. Right. And I'm going to be very honest here. I deserve very little of it. You have been called various names like the father of the spiders. And every time I see someone say that to you, you swat it away and say, no, no, no. I was a late addition to a team. I was a very late addition to a team. Um, I think my smartest move wasn't getting involved in that. My smartest move was staying involved in that. Mm-hmm. And I get asked that question all the time. And a lot of folks moved on to different things. I got offered different roles over the time. They're like, why didn't you leave? I'm like, God, oh, this was more interesting than my day job. <laughs> I was meeting traders on Wall Street, never had done that, never knew really what the stock exchange was, to be completely honest with you. Mm-hmm. wasn't. I don't see myself as kind of an investment guy. I kind of grew up in kind of the accounting world, then kind of moved out of the product world and did a lot of different things. But- I stayed involved. So at the time, State Street, a giant custodian, a giant administrator, how does how at the time did State Street see their competitors, and what made them think, hey, let, let, let's go into some asset management? Well, I mean, at the time, we did have an asset management arm. Mm-hmm. So we had State, what is now State Street Global Advisors. At the time, it was called the Asset Management Division of State Street Bank. Mm-hmm. A horrible name for an asset manager, but... Um, AMD, and I think at the time it was very much it was a passive shop. So in effect, what we did with Spiders and Spy, the original Spy, was we combined what State Street did well, the custody, accounting, and transaction processing, and SSGA, which became SSGA, and probably got renamed that year. Maybe, yeah, probably right around then. We brought the asset management, but let's remember one thing: the American Stock Exchange came to us with this idea. Really? Oh, they yeah. said, hey, you guys are buying all these individual stocks. Why don't you put it in an ETF wrapper? Or yeah. did we not know the name ETF back then? Um, the name ETF was not known. Mm-hmm. Um, there was different iterations of what is now Spider, different names, different things we were calling, index receipts, depositories, whatever. So there's a lot of different names back then, but it was really kind of, you know, they had this idea. It kind of came out of the crash of 87. Uh-huh. where the SEC said, listen, portfolio didn't, insurance didn't work. By the way, none of this at the time I understood. 
Um, and we're trying to find something. Nate Most, who was head of product development at the American Stock Exchange, I think at the time he was in his early 70s, came up with this idea. If we can put somehow securitize something that will trade on the exchange. And they only cared about trading on the exchange. Right. Um, so basically, we came up with the idea of, they came up with the idea of, take the S&P 500 stocks, uh-huh. everyone knows what's in it, tell everyone what's in it every day, be fully transparent, and move the securities in kind, which was novel at that time. You know, one or two times you might do something unique there, but every day moving 500 stocks at the time was was new. Let's talk a little bit about uh, spiders, because... The numbers are really quite mind-blowing. SPY, the stock symbol for the Spider S&P 500 Investment Trust, has $240 billion in assets, last I looked. It's by far the most widely held ETF. And if you look at the next closest S&P 500 ETF, it's less than half the size. How did the spies become the go-to S&P 500 ETF? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a couple of really good reasons. Um, one, we were first. Uh-huh. That always helps. So there was uh, a first mover there advantage? There was definitely a first mover advantage, and it was by seven years. Right, because we we, you hear two different versions of that. The second mouse gets the cheese. The pioneers yeah. are the ones with their arrow, arrows in their back. But that hasn't really seemed to impact this in, in a significant way. Well, the spy has a few advantages. One, it's, it, it's not just that it was first. It had established trading volume. Mm-hmm. I mean, today, SPY, by dollar-weighted volume, is the most liquid equity security in the world. That's amazing. Um, it trades, and there's some fun stats on this, it's traded at a penny-wide spread for 12 years. Mm-hmm. So every day. So the difference years. between the bid and the ask is one cent. One cent, and most folks can trade inside of that. Right. It trades five, no, you know, five times more than Apple. Uh-huh. Um, and from a hundred million shares a day, what sort of volume do you do on it, a daily it, basis? It, it turns over, it can turn over, and once again, that changes all the sure. time. But it can turn over fifteen to twenty billion dollars in assets a day. Wow, that's a. Um, I think the you know the, the one stat that I hear that I love. I mean, there's the Apple stat, which is good. You take the next like eighteen ETFs combined, eighteen largest ETFs combined. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the same trading volume. Wow, that that that's so amazing. It's obviously a go-to liquidity product for the marketplace. It's not just about a buy and hold product. This is a liquidity product. It's used for as an alternative to futures. A lot of different uses to it. Very flexible. So it's fairly low cost. What's the internal expense ratio? Expense ratio is about nine, a little, a little over nine basis points. Today. Right. Is anybody even close to that amongst ETFs? Because ETFs. There's a broad range. You could pay over 100 basis points. You could pay no basis points for a ETF of ETFs that they themselves have have an internal expense ratio. How much of an advantage is nine bips versus everybody else? I think once you get into the single basis points, you know that differential. Uh-huh. If it's nine or five or it's, it's pro- insignificant, it's really especially in a product like Spy, where a lot of folks are using it. For the liquidity and trading it daily, uh-huh. so they're not buying and holding it for five years. They might Doesn't be buying and holding it for five minutes. The expense ratio is not necessarily a factor in that decision making. That makes sense, and the expense ratio is a function of the costs of running it. And you're constantly, so your trading desk has to constantly be rejiggering and arbitraging all the underlying. The, fi- the 460 stocks in the S&P 500. Well, I mean, interesting. I do think there's actually 500 in there. No, that's a, there uh, isn't. There hasn't uh, been for some time now. 
Um, but yeah, I think the interesting thing about that is actually the portfolio management side of this from an ETF perspective is uh-huh. relatively straightforward because every day when that fund goes up or down in size, and it can go up and down billions of dollars a day, mm-hmm. we don't trade that. It comes to us in kind or we deliver it out in kind. So the portfolio managers, when they read Zigger, it's really around index changes. Which or, is every June, I believe? Is uh, that right? Quarterly on the S&P. Uh-huh. It's quarterly on the S&P. Oh, it's Russell 2000. That's every June. Yes. So once a qu- how big an event is the uh, S&P 500 rebalancing? It all depends on whether or not there's just, you know, kind of up, you know, changing of capital stuff. Maybe some corporate actions is another time M&A when you have. and what have um, But if, if there's a read, you know, if there's a add and delete, that can be a relatively significant event. That's what I'm, am I thinking? That's June or October, the add, delete? That, is that once it a can year? Be, is that... it, it can be any time, Barry. Oh, really? Um, it's announced It's announced in advance. It, it can be any time. Um, do you guys get any sort of heads up, or is it you open we, your email and it's like, oh, I guess we got work to do today? <laughs> we get the same heads up the entire marketplace. Really? Does, yes. Uh, which is usually in advance you know, more than a few days. So you mm-hmm. can't plan for it. And like I said, the portfolio management team that runs that runs indexing for some of the largest, most sophisticated investors in the world. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of what they do for a living. It's their bread and butter. How, how big is your trading desk that handles spy and everything else? We have a pretty sizable equity trading desk and a pretty sizable portfolio management team that's dedicated to this. Uh-huh. The you know they're <clears throat> we're one of the largest passive invest investment managers in the world. Mm-hmm. So. We, we we look at this as there's not an science to it. And some people, you know, some folks will say, oh, we can do that on a Excel spreadsheet. We do not do that. You this really can. A- this isn't all that readily. Well, let me ask you the question as opposed to putting my uninformed opinion in. How readily replaceable are some of the things that the team does with software algorithms and, and bots? Or are they using algorithms as part of, of what they do? They're using algorithm technology and improving it every day mm-hmm. to make our process more efficient and more effective, and, con- and we'll continue to do that. Have been doing that as long as I've been involved with them, and we'll continue to do that. It's the way of the world. They they do that to find better ways to continue to deliver um, the performance that we want to deliver. Mm-hmm. And so I mentioned nine bips. Do you guys ever feel any pressure on the price side from Vanguard or BlackRock? Or any of the other large competitors out there, or is it not not all that important? You know, I think. Hey, listen, fee fee compression is actually a very it, it, it's a real live thing in the industry, and it's not just on spy. Mm-hmm. So obviously, across our ETF business, we have more than 140 plus ETFs in the U.S. more than 200 globally. So we, we see that around the globe, fee compression, fee you know, fee, fee business. So you, you definitely want to look at it. You know, I think there's certain areas where you have certain products you feel very comfortable with the fee is low enough to compete. Mm-hmm. And there's areas where you, sometimes you do adjust pricing. It, it's just a, a um, just the new reality. It's what everybody's dealing yep. with. It's and, also, but it's, a, you know, I mean, the fun thing about that is everyone's like, well, geez, that's tough on you guys. It's tough on the business. We can live with that. It's good for investors. Mm-hmm. There's a oh, reason. That, the reason that more folks are buying ETFs is because the price of them has come down in a variety of ways. Not just the expense ratio, but the bid ask spreads come in. You know, they're a lot tighter because of changes in equity market structure, and the commission rates have all come down. Commission rates are practically nothing these yeah. days. So for nine basis points and a seven dollar or five dollar transaction fee, you can own the entire S and P five hundred uh, and all. What I don't know what we are, but we four ninety something. 
How, how many stocks have fallen out and haven't been replaced yet? I don't know that they. I, I mean, they do do a good job of trying to keep that up. So it's pretty close to that. Right. I know the Wilshire Five Thousand is nowhere near. 5, nowhere 000. near five thousand. Right. Yeah. No, that's no question. That that's because they try and get every stock. But I think the, you know the great thing about that is when you think about the ETF side of this, you can make that investment. You can buy and hold SPY for ten years, twenty years. You know exactly what it is. You know exactly what's in it. You know what you're getting. Or you can buy and hold that for five minutes, ten minutes, two days, twenty days. That's what I love about the ETF. It's very flexible. It's not, you know, we have, you know, I remember when we first started launching this in, you know, hedge funds. Everyone's like, no mutual fund wants hedge funds. And I'm like, we Why do. Not? We do. Right. They help with liquidity. And liquidity matters these days. Liquidity matters. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you and State Street do besides the spiders. Uh, let's talk about GLD, the gold index. Uh, when we're recording this, uh, midsummer 2017, gold has actually outperformed the S&P this year. It's the first time that's happened since, I want to say, a few years. I'm doing it off the top of my head. Uh, how has the advent of GLD changed the entire gold market? You know, I think the advent of GLD has really helped reinforce. The gold market was a great market before GLD. Mm-hmm. It's a 24-hour trading market. It's a very global market. But what GLD was able to do was able to, I call it democratizing, the ability to invest in gold. Because prior to GLD, investors, retail investors, had very few ways to invest in gold. It was physical coins. The costs were 3 4 storage, 5%. Security, storage, security, everything. All of it. And it really wasn't. So, you know, frankly, retail investors and even financial advisors didn't, Invest in gold. I, I have a pet theory that uh, GLD just destroyed the junior gold miners because why do I want management risk, execution risk, etc., when I could just for eight bucks go buy GLD and there's my gold exposure? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it, it gave you a different way to get exposure to gold, but it gave you exposure to pure gold. I mean, because GLD is backed by physical gold in a vault. Now, um, isn't GLD also backed, isn't part of it? Um, futures contracts as well, or is it only physical gold? GLD is 100% physical gold with a little, little tiny bit of excess cash uh-huh. um, for gold they've sold because right. they have to pay expenses. But literally, there is physical gold bars in a vault backing GLD. There was very, a, very important to the to the structure of the fund. There was a wonderful article in the Wall Street Journal about how GLD came about. I want to say about five years ago. And really, it was a function of the World Gold Council. They say, hey, we have all this excess inventory. Let's find a way to get this out of our vaults into somebody else's hands. And how? what was that interaction like between State Street and the, the World Gold Council? And were the spies helpful in having you guys win that business? I would say, so at this point in time, we're talking, we started working with them Probably 03, end of 03 into the 04. And they had worked very much on the concept and the idea. We're working very much with the legal process. But the World Gold Council's focus wasn't on distributing ETFs. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were looking for a partner. I'm very happy that we became their partner on this from a marketing and distribution standpoint. So we had, at the time, Spy, Sector Spiders, Diamonds, another suite of ETFs. So we had a, you know, hand, probably time, probably 20, 25 ETFs in our. Sweet. Today, it's well over 100. Um, but we, we looked at partnering with the World Gold Council on GLD. We thought the product structure worked great. It was a 
that was one where it was a close race to who was going to get first. Uh, very mm-hmm. happy to say GLD was first to market on that. And that's also dominated like nothing else. Nobody's even close to them. No, it's been a really, really strong product. And listen, it's it, it's it, it, it's one of those products where it's really helped investors be able to allocate to gold um, as a diversifier in their portfolio. And depending on how they have a view on that, they might have an overweight to that. They might have an underweight to that. But there's a strategic case for having an investment in gold. I remember – now, my reputation is a little bit of a gold bug basher. But I remember being on television in 04, 05, and it wasn't long after GLD had come out. And – one of the anchors had said, so what does an investor do to hedge themselves against inflation? And my answer was, well, you could buy the gold ETF, it's GLD. And everybody looked at me like I had two heads. Now, everybody is totally plugged in. And I remember, was it 2010 or 2011? GLD briefly passed spiders as the biggest ETF in the world, arguably quite the sell signal for gold at that point. Um, well, there was a lot going on at that point. Uh-huh. You remember that, if I'm correct, the exact timing around that was the concern about the U.S. downgrade of their debt. That's right. So there was a lot of things going on in the world there. I want to say 2010 or 2011. I think it was 11. But it was I, post-crisis. I, it was the... post-crisis. I think it was 11, but it, it was either 10 or 11. I'm pretty sure it was 11. But that that was, yeah. I, I was, you know, GLD is a great product. Uh, it's fantastic. But to have it be the largest... ETF in the world was a little strange when you think mm-hmm. about kind of the broader equity world. Um, so I think, you know, from that perspective, there's a lot of dynamics in the marketplace. I'm not sure it was a sell signal on gold. I think it was just a overall what was going on in the world at that point right. in time. Makes makes sense. And when we look at the total value of gold as an asset versus the equity markets, it's just totally dwarfed. The equity markets are giant. Yeah, exactly. That's, that was more my point. Like, the TOD has a purpose and a place and a portfolio. But should it be the largest ETF in the world? I'm not so sure. <laughs> so so let's talk about some of the multi-factor ETFs that are out there. Uh, what do you think of these? And I'm really curious as as the process. We'll, we'll talk about the process later. What do you think about these single and multi-factor ETFs that are becoming increasingly popular? You know, I think that, listen, I think it's it's very straightforward to me. You have to know how they work. Are you committed to for the long term? Because they work, whether it's single factor or multi-factor. They're meant to work over an entire market cycle. And my my premise on them is that's fine. If you're an investor, you've done your due diligence, understand the product, understand what it's not going to keep up with, whatever the benchmark index might be that might be market cap, mm-hmm. where I worry about this from an investor standpoint, because institutions have been using these factors to invest for quite a while now. But they have long-term views and convictions. I worry. What I worry about from an end investor standpoint is that they see this. Oh, this is something new. It seems like it's great, and oh, it's underperforming. You know, a low month. of all, right. it's underperforming in a running market, which it should do. Right. So they sell it exactly when they need low of all. Right. So it's really one of those from an investor standpoint. Do you educate? You know, do you do diligence? Do you education? Understand the product, whether it's single factor or multi-factor. Obviously, multi-factor is really trying to package them together for you, and there's a couple of different ways you can do that. But understand what you're investing in. Cause know if know you, what you own. Know, know what, I mean, it's, you know, it's basic, but know what you own. Understand your long-term goal and what you're trying to do to get there. Let's talk about uh, some of the more interesting trends that we see uh, in investing these days. Smart beta. is is Some people have criticized that 
as a marketing slogan. Other people have called it fundamental indexing. What do you guys think of this? Uh, you know, I think it, it's a term. Mm-hmm. It tries to capture a lot of different things. I've had different debates within our firm. We're an investment firm, so we debate a lot of things around different things. And I had someone tell me, Jim, if you want to call what we do, you want to call anything that's not market cap indexing smart beta, you can't. That means we have a huge business in it because we right. have products like the Dow, which is not Dow's not market cap. It's actually price weighted yeah, so with you could a make complicated the case formula. As an alternative index. That's smart beta. Now mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Um, it is. It's a term. I I look at it. It's most of the cases you're looking at smart beta. It's about factor. Uh huh. And it's about you know. So you're either buying earnings or dividend growth yeah. or some other metric. Yep. And, I, mean, I mean, the interesting thing is dividend ETFs have been around for a heck of a lot longer than the term smart beta. Right. <laughs> but they're now seen as smart beta. So I, uh, this is an odd question. You mentioned the diamonds. The names that you guys come up with for um, marketing things like the S&P 500 and the Dow, I mean, the S&P Spiders commercials, those are great. I mean, it's clear that it, it, it's not what you expect. It sticks in your mind. How do you not remember spiders when you see a little spider crawling <laughs> on the screen? The same thing with the uh, Dow Jones Diamond being the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is yeah. what DIA stands for. But again, how does that process of coming up with, here's what the index is, here's what the name is, here's our marketing campaign, they all seem to flow seamlessly into each other. Yeah, you know, and listen, everything evolves over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you go back to the early days of Spy, it was a different kind of spider, scared some people. Right. So it's been softened over the years. Oh, no, it's cute now. It's a yeah. softened, it's, it's a been cuddly. F- uh, uh, so I, mean, I think we've seen different things. Listen, there's a lot of work that goes in trying to understand kind of from a product development standpoint, mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time on product innovation and really making sure we're, re- we're responsible in the products we're developing. Right. We're not perfect. No one's perfect at this. But you kind of look at it and say, okay, we want to make sure anything we're going to put our name on, we own. We're going to be behind it. We're going to make sure we have a marketing strategy around it. Um, you know, a unique thing that happens in our space, which I think is a little different than the traditional asset management mutual fund space, is we all have ticker symbols. Mm-hmm. Ticker symbols matter. So you try and see if you can come up with a unique ticker symbol. There is a, um, a number of ac- academic studies that have shown that a ticker symbol that's a word has a tendency to do better than a ticker symbol that's just random letters. And that's just the behavioral side of it. Um, what, other, what other ticker symbols? You, uh, you guys don't do moo, do you? We don't do moo, although it, it's a very good symbol. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, listen, I think you, you got to wear, I mean, listen, there's two, there's two pieces to this. You don't want to buy an ETF because it has a cool ticker symbol. Right. You want to make sure you understand the ETF and underlying and where it fits for you. Right. But it can help get your attention. Mm-hmm. And so you think about sector spiders. Every, everything in sector spiders starts out with Excel. Right. No. That back in the time, that's what we did. That's how we designed Here's the it. Spreadsheet. So, but if you, you know, if you're a trader, you know what XLF is. You know what XLE mm-hmm. is. Right. You know, you know that that's the financial sector spider and the energy <clears throat> sector spider. But no one calls them by their whole name. And sometimes you just have to get a little lucky with a name. I remember when the ETF hack came out, and then a month later, Sony Pictures was hacked. And suddenly it was in the news every yep. day, and that became a billion-dollar ETF. Yep. That's the power, that's the power of a, a name. Um, what about market capitalization? We look at the way 
um, a lot of ETFs and a lot of indexing, passive indexing is done. It's cap weighted. Uh, there's been some criticism, some pushback on that. What 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 is the official State Street view on cap weighting? <laughs> I don't know if I want to give an official State Street view on that. I'm going to give my view on okay. that. Okay, even better. Uh, but I think pretty straightforward. You know, cap weight is tried and true. It's been around for a very long time. It's kind of what indexing started that. I think some of the things you're seeing today have emerged because of technology, honestly. I'm not sure you could have isolated some of the factors today right. as easily as you can. And then execute on top of it. And execute on top of them right. 15, 20 years ago. So. Technology has helped you and allowed you to do other things. But market cap, when you think about it, it's a very straightforward thing. It makes sense, you know. And the it self-balances to it some self-balances. degree. And what I worry about from an investor standpoint is sometimes investors will take, you know, they'll just mismatch things together. Mm-hmm. And you really have to lens through and make sure you understand what you own. Because even though you might have the S&P 500, and if you have the S&P 500, the Russell 2, and some mid-cap, you might have overlap. Right. You know, so you really want to understand kind of where your, you know, what your overall portfolio looks like. If you can get a portfolio portfolio analyzer that shows all of it, right? Because some people will buy, you know, I'll have this active large cap fund, I have this other active mid cap fund, this really large cap fund. I'll have spy, and what you find out you have is you have multiple duplication across your portfolios. They you think, think they're diversified, but they really yeah. have a giant. That Venn diagram of overlap is yeah. is. Is tremendous. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, ESG, which is probably um, the hottest new or not so new uh, theme in investing: environmental, social, and governance. You have five separate ETFs uh, in that space, uh, if not more, since uh, we last looked. Uh, the ETF SHE, which is focused on companies that are. Um, either run by women or have diverse uh, diversification uh, across their corporate board with women or other uh, women, female-related um, governance issues is about $330 million. Is that about right? Uh, where's the demand for these sort of products coming from? Because it really seems to be the, the hot new thing. So, I mean, the demand is coming from a lot of different places, depending on the type of ESG product. So, the gender diversity ETF, she was a product that we did with um, Calister, so California mm-hmm. Teachers Pension. Um, That's very interesting it, that they came to you and said, hey, we have an idea, we need to check off this box, which we can't really do cheaply elsewhere. Can yeah. you guys develop this with yeah, us? Yeah, and it wasn't. It, it was interesting. It was really based on the research. So they came to us and said, can you do a research project around this? Uh-huh. Like the research, we had to get deep into the research, because some of the research is really just looking at corporate board seats, and that's a nice to have, but it, an easy thing to a company to fix. This is really going down in the company and saying, where is your you know, your senior management, your executive management, and how diverse is it? And it's stats that you can get. You know, that's when, one of the challenges with these things. Sometimes, like, you know, it sounds great, but if you can't get to the core data, uh-huh. it's hard to build a product around it. Makes so sense. we worked very hard with them on the research around this and then turn it into an index that we feel can continually update in get to the exposure that we're trying to get to. And and the academic research on gender diversity says corporations that have their board of directors, their senior management, their hiring that is uh, more diverse than the average company actually do better than the index. That's what the research showed. Uh, what other stuff tends to do better than, than, the, than the index? What other research is there showing different themes actually generate alpha? 
So it, it, it's challenging. So it's challenging. When I think of the whole kind of board, you know, you know, governance area, you know, we're very active in governance mm-hmm. as a firm because we think it's right for the folks who invest in us. And we think we're trying to produce a better long-term outcome for mm-hmm. the investor. It's not a short-term view. The unique thing about being a large passive index player is an active manager can look at a company and say, I don't think they're taking the long-term view on you know, the environment right, mm-hmm. and it's going to hurt their company's profits, and sell it. Makes sense. We, as an index provider, can't sell that company even if we have the same view. So we engage with it on our concerns, whether mm-hmm. it's diversity of the board, gender diversity, all diversity, or if it's around some of their views on you know, social programs or long-term views on the environment. We, have, we, we look at our responsibility from a corporate governance standpoint to engage. Makes a lot of sense. Um, although you lose the stick of saying, and if you know, we're not happy with your answers, we're, we're going to sell, but you still have the ability to vote proxies and do other things. So companies, I assume, are somewhat cooperative. When State Street comes and says, hey, we have these concerns, how receptive is corporate management? I that? think you know what we have found is they're re- very receptive, and we want to work with them on the long term. So we're mm-hmm. not going to, we're not the, you know, we're not in this going to them saying, hey, we have these concerns, what are you going to do about it tomorrow? You're not, you're not activist investors demanding boards. Exactly. We're in there saying, give us your long-term view on this. Here's our long-term view. How can we continue to work together? But, yeah, the, you know, the, the stick there is that we vote proxies. What are the ETFs that State Street has that addresses people who are concerned about the environment? And what do you expect the long-term demand for these products to look like in the future? Yeah. So we, we, most of that today has been focused on, once again, it gets to... What do you have good data on that mm-hmm. you can actually build an index on and an investment strategy on? Mm-hmm. Um, so we do try and look at that from the long term. We are focused. We have a product that is low carbon, that really is you know a subset of the core S and P five hundred. What, what's the ticker symbol on the low carbon ETF? Low C. Low C makes sense. Um, good and, good ticker. Yep. And then we have Spy X, which is really focused on carbon free. Mm-hmm. Um, a fossil, yeah. What's the What's the difference? So, uh, uh, Spy X is no oil companies, no coal companies, nothing that yes. is carbon based. Whereas Losi is really trying to get you to that same core benchmark return mm-hmm. by underweighting carbon producers, but not completely eliminating. So it's a them. weighting shift as it's a weighting shift to... versus an exclusionary and and product. which which is better, uh, Spy X, or, which okay. is bigger, Spy X or Losi? I think low C today is a little bit bigger, but the really? better is a hard one to say. Right. Because low C fits a little bit better into your asset allocation if you're an institutional investor. Because right. you still want to get exposure. Right. Um, you don't necessarily want to make a big bet one way or the other. It, the other one is more if, if you're an investor that fundamentally believes that's where you want to invest, which is what a lot of the ESG is. This is where I, my mind is. We see this more with institutions in Europe than we see it even in the U.S. today. Huh. That, that's quite fascinating. I we also tend to see that uh, with millennial and youthful investors, mm-hmm. and admittedly, small part of the current market. But hey, that's probably where things are going ten, twenty, thirty years from now. Um, so, what about business risk? You guys obviously have massive exposure to the market. What does it mean if the market takes a twenty or a thirty percent correction? Does that mean your revenues are dropping? By a substantial amount, 
I mean, we're a revenue-based organization. I mean, we're an asset-based organization in many ways. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> SSGA is a pretty diversified business and mm-hmm. that we have fixed income, we have cash, and we have equity. We obviously have GLD. <clears throat> so in some cases, when some of those are coming off, some of the other things will be going up. But yeah, in general, when the market, if and when the market goes down like that, we feel pressure on the revenue side, no question. No doubt. And you mentioned earlier uh, the VIX and some of the low volatility products. Um, we have a tremendous amount of political volatility, but we really haven't seen all that much uh, market volatility. Uh, we, we The day after the fire and fury Trump remark about North Korea, the market opened down fairly substantially. I think we closed down 30 points on the Dow yesterday, which is which is nothing. It's a tick. How do you guys look at this, and, and, and what, what, if anything, do you do about it? I think, you know, we... It, what we try and do best is, and most is really just make sure our clients are informed about what our views are on the market, what we think about it as a firm, um, communicate as much as we can. You know, I think the reality is is what you see in political you know, instability in some cases does not necessarily drive the market. The market's going to be driven on the fundamentals of the underlying stocks and the long-term views of those companies for the most part. And once again, there's always a potential that there's a, you know, something going on in the world from a Political, not even political, but just you know anything can happen in the world. It can be a market shock, mm-hmm. and you try and think about those. You know, black swan, gray swan, whatever you want to call them. Try and think about those and make sure they're part of your overall investment strategy and plan that you've thought about. The, that the fact the market can go down. Um, and I worry sometimes in this recent run that folks haven't really seen it's a lot of that. But you know, I think it's important for folks to make sure you're you're still looking at your long term outcome. And understanding why you have the diversification you have, and hopefully you're rebalancing at different points in time. So, someone mentioned the other day that we now have an entire generation of traders that has never experienced the rate rising environment, which yeah. is which is pretty funny. Um, last market related question: There is a general sense from a number of quarters that markets in the U.S. are overvalued. How do you look at valuations, and what can you guys do about that? Uh, as a product manager. So I'm not sure there's a lot we can do about that as a product manager. I think what we try and do is ensure that we have a diversified set of products. So when our clients want to diversify, if they if they believe that there's a long-term view, and we saw this shift, you know, we saw the shift into, you know, strong into the U.S. after the election mm-hmm. and shift into much more of a Europe looks a little more attractive. If you look at ETF flows, you can see a lot of things. If you look at broad ETF industry flows, you can see a lot of trends that play through right. from the markets where people want to are shifting some of their some of their bets, I'm going to call it, um, towards- Europe, um, EM, et cetera. <clears throat> Europe and EM is definitely, you're probably more Europe initially than probably a little more EM now. Mm-hmm. So I think we see that playing out in the marketplace. My goal is kind of somebody who has a broad, diverse product set is to ensure that we have products for- our investors that they can use if they want to shift. We're not telling necessarily folks to shift. You know, our goal is really to make sure we provide them with the information, engage with them about what their options are, and they're the ones that are going to direct, you know, whether they want to shift their clients' assets. That's why we work very closely with, you know, financial advisors and investors all around the globe. Can you stick around a little bit? We'll we'll keep talking about all things uh, ETF related. Sure. We have been speaking with Jim Ross. He is the chairman of the State Street Spider Global Group, as well as uh, chairman of SSGA's uh, asset management arm. 
If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our full podcast. You can find that on Bloomberg.com, Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever fine podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. You can find my daily columns on BloombergView.com. Check me out on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim, for doing this. I've really been looking forward to this uh, for a long time. Uh, so it's bye, Barry. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, here. my my pleasure. You, you're a legend in the industry, and <laughs> this entire um, library would be incomplete without without you in it. So so let's talk a little bit about some of our our favorite questions, things that uh, I really like. What's the most important thing people don't know about your background? That's an interesting question. There's a lot of things I don't want people to know about my background. Uh, well, I happen to have a dossier here. Yeah. You. you were in Russia <laughs> recently, weren't you? No, 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 no. I was a captain of a really bad basketball team in high school, but that doesn't really matter. You don't uh, strike me as a basketball player. You look, you're, you're a solid guy. You look more like a football player than I was a 160-pound point guard in high school, but that's okay. Really? I've changed a little bit over time. <laughs> I think, you know, I the one in, I'll say it, the one that I... I think people probably don't know about background. I got involved in ETF somewhat by accident, mm-hmm. and I get a lot more credit for Spy than I deserve. Mm-hmm. You've every time I've seen you speak publicly, you practically open with that. So no, no one could ever accuse you of, yeah. of taking um, uh, credit for something that that you don't deserve. Let Let's talk about some of your mentors. Who are the people who really influenced your career? You know, there's been quite a few. It, 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 I, I think of mentors and it's like sometimes when somebody has like I just had this one mentor my whole career. I think of it we probably came you know, my first mentor was probably my dad. Mm-hmm. Got a lot from him. Um but I think I, I look at mentorship as I've taken things from different folks I've worked with, good and bad, uh-huh. over the years. You know, different it- styles. Um, you know, I take a little bit the folks who first hired me at State Street, Kathy Kukolo, Glenn Francis, gave me a great opportunity, so I give them a lot of credit. I've learned different things from them over the years. Um, one for sure was CEO of SSGA for the year, for the early years I was there, which is Tim Hobbit, mm-hmm. um, who unfortunately passed away on the job in 2003. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but he was one who I took a lot from. Like I said, I've worked for a lot of different folks. I've seen a lot of different styles. So part of what I try and do is understand different folks' style, take the good, maybe not take some of their bad. So I've worked with folks who have hot tempers, but they're passionate. Okay, mm-hmm. well, I want to take the passionate side. I don't really have a temper all that much, so you try and learn from different things. But though, I think a mentorship is kind of like, that's how I've done it over the years. Different folks I know have different mentors. I've had colleagues that I've looked at as mentors um, that's been straight peers of mine because I like the way they do things. I've learned from them. That That's quite, that's quite fascinating. Um, what investors have influenced the way you approach your job? You know, it's funny. I'm not. I, I'm not a core investment guy. Mm-hmm. I didn't come up with that. I didn't read about investments. I'm not sure how I knew Warren Buffett was 20 years ago. To be completely right. honest with you, so I don't want to sit here and BS on that. I mean, who, I, what, what's his name? Who? 
What Warren, Warren uh, Buffett, right? Uh, I, I think r- I'm going to be honest with you. Rings a bell. 25 years ago, I knew Jimmy Buffett a lot better than I knew <laughs> Warren Buffett. And it turns uh, out they're distant cousins. Yeah. So, um, but I think I learned most of my investing, frankly, from working in the industry at State Street and SSGA. Mm-hmm. That's where I kind of got the passion A for ETS, but B for, you know, the ability to use passive product to get to the outcome, which is different than passive versus active, in my view. Sure. Do, do you, uh, and a uh, quick digression, is everything that State Street does, is it in-house, or do you ever acquire things from the outside? We do some. So we have some partnerships where we'll hire sub-advisors in different areas. We've done mm-hmm. that in our ETF business. We have a great partnership there with Double Line mm-hmm. for core fixed income, GSO Blackstone for bank loans, MFS for equities, and frankly, Nuveen for munis. So we do, we do, have a, we do that in certain segments. We also manufacture both active return streams within the firm and passive return streams, obviously. Huh. That, that, that's interesting. So this is everybody's favorite question. What are some of your favorite books? So I'm going to be honest here. My wife gave me an idea. I chose not to take it, um, which was look up what Donald's answer was for this. I don't read a lot. Mm-hmm. If I tend to read, and I'm sitting here in New York City, so I just want to be honest about this. It tends to be about some of the Red Sox or Patriot success stories. Uh-huh. Um, so books on the 2004 Red Sox, I enjoyed that year. Didn't enjoy being at Game 7 in 2003. Um, 2003, okay. Aaron Boone. Um, who, who just... Uh, my, my biggest Red Sox um, recollection was the game against the Mets in... Is that 87? 86. 86. It was the 86 World Series. Bill I was Buckner. 21 years old. Really? Yes. That uh, uh, that stayed with you, huh? That stayed with me. That hurt. It I, still I, hurts. And and at this point, have we have we all accepted Deflategate is a real thing or no? That that went nowhere with Tom Brady. I have no idea what you're talking about. Deflategate. Oh no, I know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't think it's real at all. All right. Um, so let's let's talk about the overall investment industry. What are some of the most significant changes since you've joined? God, there's it been a lot of change. I mean, I think change is constant in this world, constant in this industry. You know, I think we've seen just the way people can invest has changed dramatically. You know, huge, huge difference. You know, I think about, you know, going back 25 years ago, and this is, I, I, I just laugh at this, but you go back 25 years ago, one of the things your broker did for you is you own usually individual stocks. Sometimes you might call them up and say, hey, what's, what's this stock doing today? Because right. you couldn't see the price. Right. You didn't want to wait till the next day. We, we take it for granted that you could look at any price at any time, 24 hours a day. That wasn't how it used yeah. to be. But I look at, you know, commissions have compressed. You know, how you invest and how you work with a financial advisor has probably gone from commission-based to fee-based. As mm-hmm. far as that world, what you pay to buy and sell stocks, ETFs, anything has come down. You know, I go back to the days where there's a single specialist. They own the book. You know, and Spy traded it. 30 cent spread. That's what we knew. Spy trade is less than a penny spread today. Less than <laughs> so, a penny. That, um, so you get commissioned. I think that's kind of some of the good things. Some of the bad things, I think, from an investor standpoint, it's gotten a lot more complex. There's a lot more product out there. You need mm-hmm. to do your due diligence to invest. And so naturally, the next question is, what are the next shifts? What do you see happening within the industry that people may not be anticipating? Yeah, you know, it's... It's always easy to look back and see what's happened and try and look forward and say, here's my great prediction. Right. Um, but I, I've seen a lot of things, and I continue to see 
improvements going on in the marketplace, the way people invest, the way they think. I look at technology, and, and I'm looking at this broadly, not just around robo-advice, but you see people buying managed portfolios that way. Um, it's just, and it's just a way I think younger investors want to be able to do it directly. I think they, at times, want to get advice, so I think that's going to continue to shift. I also think there's, you know, long term, I think there could be more tech disruption in the financial space. I think we're, you know, we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that there's folks looking at the asset management space and the broader financial space and say, geez, is there a piece of that that we can play in that will be good for us? And I'm a technology firm. What was what was Jeff Bezos's line? Your margin is my opportunity. Hundred percent. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So, so we've been talking about all your successes. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from that. Oh God, I failed a lot. Um, I failed a ton. So I, I mean that in a good way because big part of my career has been launching product. And if you don't take risks and fail, you're not going to have success. If you wait to try and think you have everything right. First of all, you're probably going to beat the market by about five years, and you're going to mm-hmm. figure out whether or not it was right or wrong. So um, I have different products over the years. Um, one of them, a famous one I worked on, called the O-Strip. Did you ever o- hear of it? No. Yep, triple O's. Great ticker. O-O-O. O-O-O, great ticker. What, what? Idea from the marketplace, so idea from a friend of mine, solving a problem because at the time the NASDAQ stocks didn't have a close. For the S&P. Okay. And it was a problem for the trader, so he was a trader. He said, Tim, this is going to be a great ETF. We develop it, we launch it. Nasdaq fixed the problem. Six months later, the product. Now we're trying to see we sell it as a tech stock, and it just was a failure. So, so what O's I, versus the QQQs is that we what? tried for a little bit. That didn't really fly either. So, what I, my my advice to everyone on failure is fail quick, fail quick, fail quick. Learn from learn from it. Move on to the you next. Know, one of the best comments a colleague of mine said to a board member about me one day is, "Jim doesn't lose sleep over the failures." He wonders why the ones that are successful are successful. <laughs> that you're losing sleep over the winners, not the losers. Yeah. That that's pretty funny. Um, so tell us what you do to keep mentally fit. What do you do to relax or for enjoyment outside of the office? So I, I do a lot of different things. I, you know, mentally and physically, I've actually work out a lot more than it probably looks like I work out. I have to. It's all uh, muscle underneath. It's getting there. Uh, I'm working on that. Uh, if I don't keep hurting things, it would be better. I know but the I, feeling. Yeah, no. Yeah, it, sure. By the way, it only gets worse as you get yeah. older. It doesn't no, get better. I know. I get knee issues and shoulder issues, but uh, but we walk. So my wife and I moved into the city a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, your Uber bill is going to go through the roof. I don't have an Uber bill. At least not for walk. In the city of Boston, we walk everywhere. Mm-hmm. We don't Same thing think, here in New York. Yeah, you don't think about it. Um, you know, other things. Listen, we have a house on a lake in New Hampshire. I have a boat. I play golf up there. Lots of family and friends up there, so that's kind of how we like to enjoy ourselves. And we're not against going out and having maybe a cocktail and a nice meal here and there. Are, are you a fisherman or a water skier? What, what do you use the boat for? We use the boat more for tooling around the lake, and then nieces and nephews and friends will throw off a tube uh-huh. and kick them around the lake. So That's, that's, a, that's a lot of fun. I, I love to do the same thing. Um, let's let's We talked earlier about mentors, and let's talk a little bit about millennials and recent college graduates what sort of advice would you give to a millennial who came to you and said hey i'm interested in the career of finance what 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 sort of response would you give them try something different no i'm kidding i uh, know i think um <laughs> you know the advice you know 
it's one of those couple of things. And I have these conversations a lot with different folks. Um, when I talk to folks early in their career, one of the first things I said was like, don't freak out. Like this next decision you make about what you're going to do in your first job after college isn't right. your final decision on your career. Right. So, you know, I think, you know, I have good friends of mine that think about their career in three-year increments and have a plan for all of it. I plan none of it. <laughs> you know, we've talked a little bit about I got involved in SPY. I stayed involved in it. Became really successful. ETS grew. I was there. It was really hard. It did a lot of hard work there. But, the, I mean, the advice I give everyone, which is kind of raise your hand. Like, I asked for more work. I got more work. It ended up being something incredible that no one anticipated it to be. Right. So... Raise your hand, work hard, do your job. I see those folks all the time. You know, if I have somebody who's been working for us for six months, they say, hey, what's my next job? I'm like, Could you go to the job I hired you for. You know, so, you know, earn, earn the right for that next step uh-huh. um, and work hard. I mean, it's not, listen, this isn't all that complicated. Work hard, do your job, and learn your craft. You know, one of the things I did early on with ETFs is I tried to make sure I understood as much of it as I could. I knew the back office side. I didn't understand trading. I can now have a conversation about equity market structure and trading. Maybe not with some of the best in the world, but I can hold my own. Mm-hmm. And and our final question, uh, what is it that you know about products, ETFs, investing today, that you wish you knew back in, in 1992 when you were uh, getting rolling? Jeez. Uh, what, do, what do I wish? I wish I knew. Honestly, I wish... You know, I wish we had seen the vision that they would become. We developed the original ETF with the intent of institutional trading firms. Mm-hmm. That was the design. Um, the adoption of them from the financial advisor and retail space has been virtually was not ever planned. So I think if I had known that, probably would have thought about that differently from a strategic standpoint from a job. Um, there's a lot of things I wish I knew knew 25 years ago. I wish, I, but I think from that perspective, it's like. You know, I wish I knew the global financial crisis was happening. I might have invested differently around that. You know, there's a lot of things you want to know, but I think reality is is you're never going to know everything. And the best thing when you're working in this world is to try and understand how best to shift when you are. We have been speaking with Jim Ross, chairman of the Global Spider Business for State Street. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 150 such conversations that we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank all the people who help put this uh, podcast together. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Medina Parwada is our audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.